whatever group you're a part of, and it could also be your school, your organization, those are really important places to be active and to start these conversations and start convening, getting people together and talking about, okay, how can we make our university, our workplace, our city, our neighborhood? What are the things that are standing in our way of taking these climate actions, becoming fossil free, and how can we address them? Hello, and welcome to the Ecopolitics Podcast, mini season three, Everyday Ecopolitics. This is a podcast for university students tackling some of the key questions and challenges in the field of environmental politics today. I'm Ryan Katrazine from the University of Ottawa, and here with me is my co-host, Dr. Peter Andre from Carleton University. Peter, I don't know about you, but I'm very excited about this third mini-season of our podcast. The overarching theme of everyday ecopolitics, we're, we're really trying to explore how environmental politics is embedded in our everyday lives. So, you know, it's embodied in the natural and built environments we live in. It's present in all of the social and political and economic systems which shape our lives. And really, it's part of our everyday choices and actions. And so in this mini series, we have outlined six uh, questions, six episodes that are each going to tackle one of these sort of distinct key questions pertaining to everyday ecopolitics. And that starts with today's episode, which asks, what does it mean to be an eco-citizen? So again, I'm super pumped about this third season. What about you? Yes, I am, Ryan. Uh, we've had some really great listener feedback on seasons one and two, and I'm really excited to be embarking on season number three. In fact, it was listener feedback that led us to change things up a bit this season. Our episodes this season are deliberately set up to bring differing perspectives to the fore about what we as individuals can do to engage in the environmental issues that affect our lives, and then to bring those voices into conversation. So rather than a long interview with just one person or two people at the same time, which is a lot of what season one and two included, most of the episodes this season are basically going to be little radio documentaries that bring unique and sometimes contrasting perspectives into conversation. There are times when you or I will interview two people and then bring those uh, interviews into a discussion with the other host. Uh, and sometimes we'll interview people separately and then have a conversation about what we learned from those different perspectives. So as an example of that, in this, our first episode of the season, uh, you and I each spoke to a different guest who we thought could really help us unpack what eco-citizenship is all about. Being an eco-citizen to me means being an active and engaged citizen who is participating in conversations, learning opportunities, um, policy spaces, um, collective action spaces with advocacy as well. I'm really working in every single sector across <laughs> all of the sectors that are available, trying to make sure that community-centered approaches are really valued because they are currently undervalued. But the people we're trying to help with policy, they have the answers. Just listening to them is a really important part of being an engaged eco-citizen. So Ryan, that's uh, Manvi Bala. She was the guest I interviewed for this episode. She's a graduate student who's completing her master's at the University of Guelph and about to start her PhD at the University of British Columbia. She's also the co-founder of two organizations, one called misinformed.ca, 
and another called Shake Up the Establishment, which we'll hear more about a little later. I'm turning 24 this year. I am both a researcher in an academic setting. I'm a graduate student, um, but I'm also a community organizer. And I think uh, I like the latter half um, of the work that I do in the sense that it really informs um, where my passions kind of come from. And then it kind of translates to the health research space that I work in a lot of the time in school. So as you'll hear, uh, Manvi's work is as a community organizer through the various organizations she's helped to found and uh, even through her research. She's fundamentally influenced by an intersectional lens, um, which she also defined for me while introducing her work in climate justice. Climate crisis with sort of an intersectional lens, which is an important and critical component because the climate crisis is not going to impact all populations equally. And so with that mindset, um, a lot of the work that I do tries to um, take into fact that different populations are going to be disproportionately impacted. And so our response needs to um, ensure that that's included in our in our process of how to address this issue. In the conversation I had with Manvi, we went into a lot of depth about what an intersectional lens means and what it ought to mean for eco-citizenship more broadly. And I'll share more of that audio later. But first, Ryan, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about who you interviewed for this episode. Sure. Uh, well, I'm very intrigued to uh, talk more about how an intersectional lens ought to shape eco-citizenship and hear more from Mambi. Uh, for my interview, Peter, I spoke to a colleague from Lund University in Sweden named uh, Kimberly Nicholas. So I'm Kim or Kimberly Nicholas, and I'm an associate professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. So I teach in the master's and PhD programs here, and I'm the author of a new book called Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World, which is about facing the climate crisis with facts, feelings, and action. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Kim. She's really an excellent communicator, and she really knows her stuff. And I started off by asking her what comes to mind when she hears the term everyday ecopolitics. Well, when I hear the term politics, I like the definition of who gets what and how. To me, politics is about negotiating trade-offs in society. At its heart, it should be about fairness and equity, ensuring that society works in a way that works for everyone and um, resources and Basically, the structure of society, which is larger than individuals, is set up in a way that works for us all. And adding the eco to it incorporates not just human society and, for example, healthcare and economies and the things that humans create ourselves, but also incorporating the natural world, which is essential because we are uh, very much dependent on it. So I find it really interesting, Ryan, that uh, Kim is started talking right away about negotiating trade-offs in society in a fair and equitable way. Uh, this is something Mamfi talked about at length as well. That this theme of equity and fairness in how we respond to the climate crisis was a big part of her work. Uh, for her, everyday ecopolitics fundamentally is about making the environmental movement more accessible to those who haven't, often for structural reasons traditionally been active in this movement. People that are looking to, quote unquote, increase the diversity in policy spaces, I say to them, you know, there are people who are unable to participate in these conversations because they have more urgent 
needs on a day-to-day level. You know, food, water, shelter, these things are critical to our very existence. And there are people within um, what is currently Canada that have difficulty accessing, you know, these very basic necessities. So it, it is not an accessible movement in many ways. Environmentalism is largely a movement that um, it is easier for people of privilege to engage in these conversations with. Um, So trying to make the movement more accessible is everyday politics at its core. Hmm, That's quite interesting that the conversation that you had with Mamvi really zoomed into equity at the, what I would say is the micro level um, as compared to, you know, my conversation with Kim, which I, I feel like was looking at equity at uh, more of a macro level. What do you mean by that? Uh, Well, I suppose one way of thinking about it is that for Kim, the conversation about equity in the context of eco-citizenship really seemed to be about people being informed about broader global climate inequities, you know, between uh, countries and also between different uh, classes of people. Um, And so this became about, you know, we had a conversation about changing our behavior based on being informed about those inequities, particularly as it related to climate change injustices. From a natural science point of view, all the climate sees is carbon dioxide added to the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases. And the climate does not care who emitted those greenhouse gases and why. So if it is somebody taking their 20th luxury flight for the year, or if it is somebody heating their home with wood, which is the only thing available to them in order to have a fire and and cook food for their children, the climate just doesn't care. On the other hand, I think people do and should care very much about the equity issues. And we know that there are tremendous inequalities and inequities in the history of climate change, that a few countries and a few groups of people have disproportionately benefited from using fossil fuels and disproportionately caused the problem. So, I mean, that is baked into the Paris Agreement. Uh, Equity is mentioned a number of times and this understanding of common but differentiated responsibility, meaning that the nations who are the parties of the Paris Agreement who have uh, caused the most climate change and have the most resources to deal with uh, the consequences and to prevent further climate change have the most responsibility to do that. So, Peter, she actually had a lot more to say about this in the context of fairness, and it eventually led us towards a discussion about intergenerational equity. It's not only about those issues which we're discussing about the inequalities between countries and between income groups within countries, also between generations, so over time as well as space. And for young people today, I think it is profoundly unfair and unjust that they have world that they have right now. I mean, it should never have gotten to this point. And it's such a huge burden for them, I think, to um, have placed on them. So I think, you know, I I write in the book, um, a little bit tongue in cheek, forget future generations. And what I mean by that is, I actually believe that we do have a responsibility to future generations, and we should be thinking about them and our choices. But in order to do what's needed and right for the climate, we actually don't need to think about hypothetical future people. We can talk to and listen to young people today who are very clearly and persuasively demanding their right to a stable climate and therefore a safer world where they actually have the opportunities that others have taken for granted. So that's really interesting that uh, Kim mentions this burden on young people. This theme also came up in my conversation with Mamvi 
about who bears the responsibility for eco-citizenship. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what did she have to say? Well, in part, it may have been about the way I framed the question. I started off by asking her how she and other young climate activists uh, approach the question of responsibility to act on climate. But pretty quickly, she pointed out that for many young people, it's a big burden that they feel. It is a lot of responsibility. Uh, it is a huge burden. And it's one that we honestly don't have a choice in, it seems like, because it's kind of like a hands-off approach that's saying, good luck on your future. So at the same time, Mambi was hopeful that since there are so many youth engaged in environmental action today, particularly on climate change and climate justice, the movement is not short on its most important resource, which is uh, humans and of all generations, I should add. For young people that are engaging in this work, something that I find hope in is also recognizing that we can pass the baton. There's so many of us. So not to take this on as an individual burden that you yourself will solve the climate crisis. You are a part of a large collective. And it's also important to know that you really can't invest in the movement until you invest in yourself. So centering rest and resiliency has been a huge part of you know my focus in the last year because it is a very... Honestly, the more you know about this issue, the sadder you get, really. So I think it's okay to also confront the reality that this is a heavy burden and you're welcome to pass the baton to another young person anytime or older person who is an ally and wants to engage in this space. And those individuals are critical towards moving this issue forward. So we went in our conversation from responsibility uh, of an individual to a shared burden that young eco-citizens can perhaps share among a larger collective of people of all ages. I know you had plans to ask Kim about this question of responsibility too. Uh, what did she have to say about the responsibilities of an eco-citizen? That's right. I, I did ask Kimberly who ultimately bears the responsibility for being an eco-citizen. And in particular, I, I wanted to get her thoughts on whether this was a responsibility that she saw in everyone or whether... To be blunt, we can get away with some people not taking on the responsibility of eco-citizenship. Uh, so here's a clip from when I asked her about that. As someone who's thought about this a lot, do you see a responsibility for everyone to be uh, an eco-citizen in some respect? Yes, I do. Because I think it is essential to having a successful democracy in the 21st century and for the preconditions for us to have a good life in the 21st century. We just cannot avoid the fact that we are in a climate emergency right now and it is going to keep getting worse until we actually make some major both technical but especially political and social changes most importantly to completely stop using fossil fuels so i do think that whatever you care about and whether it is education or healthcare or other issues in your community i mean it is directly linked to climate stability and being able to actually make the changes needed in time to have opportunities in other areas that we care about. Though I should add here, uh, Peter, that, you know, Kim did uh, mention some statistics on who in our society is displaying some form of, you know, uh, climate concern. So she referred to some research coming out of Yale, um, which was, which basically says that most Americans are actually either concerned or alarmed uh, even about climate change. And in fact, it's only about 10% of the population um, that we would call climate dismissive or what she referred to as climate dismissive. So she kind of 
seem to be optimistic that, you know, with 90% of the population actually caring to some degree about climate change in, in some way or other, we might actually have enough of a critical mass to make a difference if all of those people kind of fulfilled their role as eco-citizens. Uh, but I also want to play another clip for you, Peter. I asked Kimberly if there's an added responsibility for people like her and myself and you for that matter. So those you know who are privileged to live fairly secure livelihoods with stable incomes in wealthy countries. Um, and here's what she had to say about that. Yes, I absolutely think that people who have more privilege do have more responsibility. And in particular, we can look at income. So what the data show is that for people who earn over about 38,000 US dollars per year, that's only 10% of the world. So maybe for, students aren't there yet, but um, the majority of people in the US are actually in that group. And that means they're in the top 10% of income earners and also emitters in the world. And it's quite disproportionate. It very quickly escalates. Emissions increase rapidly with income, uh, primarily from use of transport. So the, mo the more money you have, the tendency that the data show is that you turn it into fossil fuels. And the biggest way people do that is by flying a lot and then secondarily by driving a lot. So if you look at the numbers, there just is no way to get the kind of emissions reductions fast enough on the scale we need to limit warming to 1.5 or even you know, above that within the terms of the Paris Agreement, we have to reduce overconsumption. I see what you're uh, pointing to me here, Ryan. Uh, she's really drawing connections between the responsibility of privileged few through to the question of consumption. So did Kim see eco-citizenship as being about changing one's consumption patterns? Well, sort of. I, I was pretty keen to ask her about the difference between, you know, our responsibility as eco-citizens in a civic sense versus, you know, our responsibility to be good, you know, consumers. And, you know, I've heard in previous episodes in this podcast series, a lot of people are kind of uncomfortable with this framing around the idea of like personal responsibility as a consumer. Um, and so I asked her about that. She started off by, you know, agreeing that there is actually a need to differentiate between these two types of citizenship. I agree that there has been too much focus on people as consumers, as our primary or only personal or individual climate action. Um, for example, ignoring the role as citizens, as as parents, as educators, as colleagues, other all the other roles that we play in our lives. And, you know, actually, she, she pointed to research that she's done uh, with colleagues here in Canada, actually, showing that, you know, most of the personal actions that people have been taking or that at least have been advocated by governments and even educators, environmental educators, have actually been pretty ineffective. And the big one there is recycling. There's this big focus on recycling. So she she also agreed fundamentally that, you know, personal action on its own, quite frankly, isn't going to cut it when it comes to mitigating climate change. We need structural and policy change. And, and basically it means governments have to stop investing in and subsidizing and supporting and start actually making it impossible to produce and consume fossil fuels. That's the biggest change that we need. And that's a big change. That's quite far away from where we are today. We know that we're not on track. No government, no country in the world is on track to meet their Paris Agreement obligations. Now, 
she also pointed out um, just how significant of a problem overconsumption is. And the flip side of what she's saying there is that, you know, there could be a significant difference made if we found ways to reduce consumption, particularly in rich countries. Almost half of household climate pollution comes from the 10% highest emitters. And that is primarily from household consumption choices. So it's about mobility, how we get around, flying and driving. It's about the food that we eat and uh, how we heat and light and our homes and basically the energy we use in our homes. And yes, we definitely need policies to make those um, compatible with a stable climate and fossil-free. But the overconsumption angle also needs to be recognized as a social problem. And we need social and cultural change to make it uncool and undesirable um, and not something you would post on your Instagram to brag about, you know, here's me at a tropical beach that I flew to, instead of thinking, oh, you know, that looks like status and um, relaxation, where you should be thinking, oh, that looks like a whole year's carbon budget in a weekend. That's not a great idea. Yeah, I see uh, what she's saying. So there's a role for eco-citizens to call for and seek out collective political change but that doesn't let people off the hook insofar as changing our consumption habits, especially for wealthier members of our society. But for those people who do need to change their consumption, what's the way to make that happen? Well, I think one key step for Kimberly is really to improve that climate literacy that we were talking about earlier. I know that it is part of the government's goals to inform and um, empower citizens to actively participate in environmental decisions, recognizing that those are a, a huge and critical part of all of our lives now and certainly for students um, in the future. So we defined climate literacy uh, in terms of some basic facts of what we say are what everyone needs to know about climate change. And that's also an organizing principle of my book. And it's a framework I've used for teaching for more than a decade now, which is it's warming. It's us. We're sure it's bad. We can fix it. And so that is how I've defined climate literacy, linking that with the latest science, for example, from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to um, make sure that that is part of students' curriculums. And unfortunately, what we've seen from the analysis in Canada was that most uh, curricula in high school don't cover all of those areas. Um, many are missing, especially focus on scientific consensus and on uh, solutions and those are really critical areas because research shows that people need to know all of those areas in order to connect the dots, both to take personal action and to support ambitious climate policy. So that's you know one key step, um, improving climate literacy. But quite frankly, another key one is to really focus on changing the consumption habits of the biggest emitters. Kind of a rule of thumb that I use is that if you're around the average of household emissions for your country. Don't worry too much about your footprint. That is not the biggest bang for your buck because the reductions you could make will require structural changes. You need to have clean transport and infrastructure available to you to use to make changes. But if you're a high emitter, you do have to make changes in order to meet climate targets. And what our study showed was that the highest impact personal climate actions are to go car, flight, and meat free. 
So I know a lot of listeners just perked up their ears on this question of dietary changes in particular. And, you know, this is actually the main theme that we're going to tackle in our next episode. So to listeners, you know, stay tuned for, for a whole episode on that specific question. But I should add that I asked him to clarify um, whether she thought a climate safe future really kind of required getting rid of cars and meat altogether, or whether there's, you know, the space for greener cars, such as electric vehicles or greener forms of meat consumption, which might include things like eating less meat and maybe even focusing on more sustainably produced meat. There was a a study in Sweden on what would a 1.5 degree world look like. And there was a budget for flying in there. It was something like a flight between Sweden and Spain, which I'm not exactly sure. I think that'd be like four hours total. So like a two hour each way uh, flight once every seven years. That was the sustainable flight budget. A sustainable driving budget is around 20 kilometers per day, even with a fossil free car. And a sustainable uh, meat budget, I am thinking of the Eat Lancet report, which found that a healthy and sustainable diet would be about 80% less meat than what is eaten in the North American diet today. So it works out to about uh, two hamburgers per month, a couple of servings per week of chicken and fish, uh, a couple of eggs per week, and dairy equivalent to a glass of milk or a piece of cheese the size of your thumb per day. So that's the framework for not completely cutting those cars, planes, and and meat out of your diet, but aiming for that level would be compatible with a stable climate within the Paris Agreement. So that's really interesting, Ryan, to hear the way that uh, Kim breaks down that very specifically in a Swedish context. And I'm hearing a few threads here. Uh, One is the need for eco-citizens to have good information and climate literacy in order to act appropriately. The other is about the need to make collective scale changes to make it easier to change social behaviors on a mass scale. So this is like transportation infrastructure and and, uh, an electricity grid that's not based on fossil fuels. And then there's the role for some specific individuals to change their own personal behavior, especially the more affluent who are the bigger emitters. So I'm curious, did Kim talk about the relationship between personal action and collective action? How are they connected? Yeah, so I asked Kim whether some forms of individual action are actually necessary for collective scale changes to take place. And she talked about some of her work looking at how individuals who take steps to reduce flying have actually led to a broader movement, a a successful uh, movement in society. So for all these reasons, there has been this social movement led by uh, individuals, but that has gained a lot of traction. It's it's gotten media coverage. um, It's gotten celebrities on board. There's been a really lively debate in the op-ed sections here. I actually lead a research project called The Takeoff of Staying on the Ground, which is studying this phenomenon as what I hope is an early case of these kind of both individual and social collective changes. Um, And one thing that I was really happy to see is that um, Veronica Maggio, who's a huge star in Sweden, she's a a singer, um, just released a song about staying on the ground. And it's actually in collaboration with the National Rail Agency here. So it'd be like if um, Amtrak or Via Rail had, you know, 
pink or some, you know, huge star writing a song about not flying and staying on the ground and traveling by train instead of by plane. So things like that do make a, a difference. And I think create space for politicians to take bolder action. Okay, Peter. So we've heard quite a bit uh, from my interview with, with Kim. I'm curious to know how, how uh, Mondi um, thought about the interrelationships between personal and collective action and, and also eco-citizenship. Um, I know you were going to ask her about that. What direction did your conversation take? Well, Mombi kept bringing our discussion back to this theme of equity. Uh, as an example, she talked about how people in various communities get engaged as climate activists. And then she was talking about the relationship between individual actions and collective action. And she really brought all of that together in this concept of equity. My research is surrounding motivation and values and and how people care about the climate crisis. Um, And what's interesting is that there are so many different reasons why people feel an emotional connection to the climate crisis. And for some people, their avenue into this might be animal rights and veganism. For some people, it might be active transport and, you know, having access to a free active environment for, you know, um, outdoor activities or for just, you know, childhood experiences of being able to be outside and that translating to wanting to protect and, you know, work in conservation. So there are so many different ways that our individual choices and values um, can lead into increasing this intrinsic motivation for action. And so I do see, um, you know, each of those individual acts as, as important, as I mentioned to you. But for me, I do still recognize that like the term carbon footprint was a marketing campaign by oil companies to blame us as individual consumers. Um, and, you know, I, I don't see it being individual consumers fault when there aren't that many options out there that are affordable for many people. I mean, one example is the the plastic water ban when we have so many First Nations on drinking water advisories. I just don't see that as climate justice. You know, I see um, it needs to be, you know, all of us together are able to make these healthy choices for our environment, but it isn't always possible for every community or group. So it sounds like she's fundamentally saying, you know, it's fine for citizens to pursue green options as an individual, but ultimately it's the system that determines whether people can even make that choice. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it, Ryan. And and this perspective also shapes how Mambi sees collective action, which is about the coming together of individuals, but crucially in a way that's open and inclusive to diverse sets of people and backgrounds and beliefs. What it looks like is every single individual working in all of these different areas having the mindset that we need to work together to solve this issue and not having the mindset that, um, you know, any individual with a certain qualification knows the answer alone or one way of knowing, one epistemological way of knowing is going to be the solution. It's going to be a combination of everything and it's going to require us all to work together, basically. So what she's really getting at here is that understanding the idea of intersectionality is about of the benefits that this brings to movements when different sets of experience and knowledge are brought together. This idea also came out when I asked Mambi about whether she sees her positionality as a woman of color shaping her work as an eco-citizen. And she brought this back to the same idea. I think it is an important aspect because I believe that 
and this is backed by sort of the literature on risk perception of climate change, but women and people of color and just racialized communities, indigenous communities, we all do see a greater risk uh, to our health and well-being and the health and well-being of others um, when we think about the climate change uh, crisis. So in that context, I mean, the, the quick answer is yes. Um, inherently, we, we do see a greater risk. And this is likely due to historical precedent. You know, we, we have been in more precarious situations and have had a difficult time, you know, in society. Um, it's not always favored for us. Um, having said that, taking an intersectional perspective towards this issue also um, you know, being a woman of color, I can really see myself in different situations. Um, I was a person who, when we immigrated to Canada, we had no money we were living in. Some of the, one of the poorest parts of Toronto, um, where there's a high concentration of new immigrants. And so having those lived experiences, I'm really able to remember that we didn't, I wasn't thinking about the environment at that time. You know, this was not something that was on my radar. So for me to say that people don't care about it right now, it's not that people don't care. They just don't have the ability or the um, capacity, you know, they're just trying to live their life. And that's really important as well. That's really interesting. She makes a really strong case for why inclusion and equity really are fundamental to consider in the environmental movement, doesn't she? Yeah, I think she does. And I'll play you another clip along these lines. We talked about the lack of representation of women and people of color in particular in the environmental movement and environmental governance and decision-making spaces in which environmental NGOs, academia, industry, or whatever are all engaging. What's so interesting or troubling is that when it comes to policy, Mambi says that the lack of representation in environmental policy spaces is not only detrimental, but it's inefficient. In a way, she's saying, look, this climate problem is so urgent, we don't have the time not to consider intersectionality from the get-go. What we're seeing is a lot of people making decisions and they say that they consulted stakeholders or something, but they're not designing policies from the beginning to the end with the idea that everybody should be included and that this policy should work for everyone. They're just designing it with their viewpoint and what Western colonial literature and academia tells them is the most appropriate, which isn't always the most like inclusive or historically well-represented perspective for many groups. And, you know, with this this is like almost short-sighted policy planning because then you're expending so much energy with activists constantly saying this is not going to work for the community. I am a part of the community or I you know, work with the community and I know this isn't going to work. So we're just having this immense back and forth during a time in which we need to be collectively solving the issue, which is very time sensitive. You know, health outcomes correspond directly to how quickly we are able to respond to this issue. And the amount of energy and resources we are wasting by not being intersectional from the get-go is very detrimental to the survival of the human species. So I really uh, appreciate what Mambi is saying here about the, the wide-ranging value of intersectionality uh, in the climate and environmental movements and how those movements really have to be paying attention to this. Agreed. Very interesting to hear what she had to say about that. So, Peter, both of our guests discussed how they see it as the responsibility of everyday individuals to become eco-citizens. But what does it actually mean in practice? How do people get involved as eco-citizens? Well, I asked Mamvi about this, about the first steps of how one goes to getting involved in this kind of work she does. 
And what I found really interesting is that her perspective was really about building skills to be a community organizer. I do think that anyone that's interested should just start small, look into your own community. What, what can you do to help people? And really just using empathy informed leadership, you know, trying to center like the human experience in everything you do and realizing that, um, you know, the work we're doing is really important, but people have lives. We have to live quality lives. We want to measure success by impact, not influence. We want to measure success by uh, success of community initiatives, by um, how much the community that's impacted was involved in the process. These sorts of things you only gain experience by doing, and it can happen in any field, any topic. Maybe you're passionate about, you know, feminist work. That's where a lot of my experience is from, and a lot of my intersectional thinking comes from the feminist work that I did in anti-poverty spaces and anti-racism spaces when I was younger. And in those contexts, the work that I was doing was climate adjacent, you know, I didn't know at the time that it was connected to climate justice. But what was interesting was that the, the skills were really transferable, you know, and, and the big the big skills of active learning, empathy informed leadership, and sort of just community building, those, those just come from doing so you, anyone can gain any experience. It's very accessible to gain experience, just by getting involved, however you can. So there you have it. Start small, look at your own community and, and go from there. Um, Peter, did you ask Mombi about how our listeners can get involved in the organizations that she's involved in specifically? Yeah, so she's about to start her PhD at UBC, uh, but she plans to continue her work in Shake Up the Establishment. And she invited our listeners to get involved. So Shake Up the Establishment is uh, an organization that is led by young people. Uh, we are a climate justice and political advocacy centered organization that is nonpartisan. And uh, pretty much all of the work that we do is just around issues that we think are really important. <laughs> um, it all connects back to, you know, social, economic and political issues uh impacts on humans that are exacerbated by the climate crisis. So we really work to uh, take that community-centered approach that I was talking about and uh, um, use it to inform the best campaigns we can to support communities, to uh, really inform policies we support, and generally just working in the environmental advocacy space to try to make a positive change that's led by young people. So how about you, Ryan? What did Kimberly say about how to get involved as an eco-citizen? Well, I didn't quite ask how to get involved per se, but rather what kinds of you know civic actions uh, we ought to pursue as eco-citizens. One really critical one is to vote and to vote for politicians who have strong climate policies, who get good scores from organizations like in the US, it's the League of Conservation Voters that assesses politicians on their environmental record. And studies have shown that politicians who get good scores there actually do have a significant impact in reducing emissions. Uh, one of my favorite studies showed that electing women is a really powerful climate action, that uh, having more women in parliament uh, actually caused CO2 emissions to go down. Um, whatever group you're a part of, and it could also be your school, your organization, those are really important places to be active and to start these conversations and start convening, getting people together and talking about, okay, how can we make our university, our workplace, our city, our neighborhood? What are the things that are standing in our way of taking these climate actions, becoming fossil free, and how can we address them? 
So there are some more uh, tidbits on how to be an eco-citizen, Peter, from um, you know being engaged civically in the democratic process to even supporting an active level of women's participation in the political process itself. Um, to what Kim was saying in the very opening clip of this episode, which is about you know actively starting conversations about climate change in the various groups and communities we're a part of. Is there anything you'd add, Peter, to what it means to be a good eco-citizen before we wrap up the episode? Well, those are all great points, Ryan. And I think uh, we'd also have to add a couple of other things that we heard in these conversations, including how changes to consumption habits are important, especially for those in, in the wealthier 10% of the world, which includes a lot of us. Um, but I also really want to emphasize what I learned from Manvi, which is that being an eco-citizen is not just about getting your own voice heard when you engage politically, but also about developing the skills to work alongside those in your communities, especially in marginalized communities, who may be very affected by a range of environmental issues, but may not have the, the time and skills themselves to get involved and have their voices heard. And that that is another important thing you can do as an eco-citizen. So, uh, Ryan, I guess that wraps up our first episode. Do you want to roll the credits? Sure. Well, first off, a big thanks to our guests for this week, Kimberly Nicholas and Mamvi Bala. To our listeners, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Uh, we're at Ecopolitics P. That's Ecopolitics with a capital P. And check out all of the incredible artwork and additional resources that we've put on our website. Uh, we have transcripts. We have video versions of each of these podcasts. Uh, we have pedagogical materials. And they're available at ecopoliticspodcast.ca. And we'd love it if you share our content, uh, share our work with others, use it, use it in the classroom, use it in your assignments, uh, and tell others about it. And get in touch. Let us know what you think of the show. The Ecopolitics Podcast is produced by Nicole Bedford. Support with transcription and captioning for Season 3 is provided by Ashley Fernall. And Adam Gibber helps us with artistic design and digital support. And the podcast is made available under Creative Commons License 2.0 Canada. Thanks for listening and see you next episode.